Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Really excited about an opportunity that I have today to be with you and to uh, open up the Word of God with you. And so I invite you to actually do that right now. Would you take out the Word of God, whether it is a printed version or an electronic version, and please turn in it in the New Testament to the book of Romans and chapter number 13. If you don't happen to have a copy of the Word of God with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you can take that copy and turn to page 127, and you would find yourself at Romans chapter 13. Now, I don't have to remind you that we're involved right now in a national election, a presidential election. And what I want to do before we actually get to Romans 13 is I want to take your temperature for just a moment. I want to take your temperature about the presidential election and the candidates for president that we have before us. So it's going to be a little informal poll. When you think about the presidential election and the candidates for president we have before us, how many of us are elated and exhilarated? We might say we're enraptured and exuberant about it all. Let me see his hands. I see a few people back there. All right, when you think about the presidential election and the candidates we have for president, how many of us are distressed and maybe a little discouraged maybe demotivated and exasperated. I see a whole bunch of hands out there. You know, when we have that reaction as a large group of people to a national election, it raises a lot of questions. Questions like, where is God in all of this? Questions like, who from a divine perspective is actually going to determine who is going to win the election? Questions like, What is our responsibility to this whole election process and to the government? In light of all that has been done for us by God in Christ, how should I be relating to this process and to the government? How should we then live? Well, today we are launching a relatively short two-part series we've entitled Nations Under God, subtitled Christian Citizenship 101, And it involves looking at Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. Now, before we actually get to the details of that, I simply want to say this, that you need to understand, and I need to understand, that Romans 13 falls into the flow of thought in the book of Romans. You remember how the first 11 chapters talk about all the great things that that God has done for us. And then you come to chapter 12 and verse 1, and it says, I urge you by the mercies of God, that's the first 11 chapters, there are some responses we are to have as a follower of Jesus Christ. And he says in the first two verses of Romans 12, we are to respond to God. By the mercies of God, we are to secondly respond to one another a certain way in verses 3 to 13 of chapter 12. And then Mark took us through this last time. We are to also respond to our enemies a certain way based on the mercies of God in verses 14 to 21 of chapter 12. And now we come to chapter 13, and he's basically saying, I urge you by the mercies of God, everything that God has done, that we are to respond to civil authority in a particular manner. And we're going to be looking at this section over two weeks. Today is part number one. Next week will be part number two. 
What I, what I would like to do, though, is begin by reading these verses from chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. I invite you to follow along as I'm reading. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil." Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this... You also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, our plan this morning as we're going through this section of verses from Romans 13 is to really do four different things. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the core teaching the core truth that Paul is laying out before us. Secondly, we're going to look at what I call two common sidesteps to this core teaching, Uh, some sidesteps that people attempt to take to sort of justify circumventing the clear core teaching of Paul in Romans 13. And then thirdly, I want to just make two clarifying thoughts as we've studied our way through this section today. And then lastly, as normal, we're going to look at some life response that we can have having encountered the Word of God. So we're going to begin by looking at the core teaching. And when you take those seven verses of chapter 13, we could break them into two parts. We first see the divine establishment of government in verses 1 to 5. And then we see our responsibility to government in verses 6 and 7. And then we can further break it down. If you take the divine establishment of government, we could define it this way. You see in in verses 1 and 2, government's authority. Verses 3 and 4, government's responsibility. And then in verse 5, we see a summary of the teaching. So we want to begin by looking at government's authority. And let's read again verse 1 of chapter 13. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. I want you to notice first that phrase, there is no authority except from God. The NIV says there is no authority except that which God has established. This has a lot of ramifications. The New Living Translation says there is no authority except by God's appointment. And in case we missed it, he adds a second phrase. Those which exist are established by God. Now, this idea that there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God is something that the Old Testament taught. 
It is also something that Jesus taught. And I'll just give you a few references. In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21, it says, speaking of God, he removes kings and establishes kings. There's no authority except from God. Those which exist are established by God. In Daniel chapter 4, dealing with the person of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the ruler at the time, three different times, verse 17, verse 25, verse 32, it says this. The Most High, speaking of God, is the ruler over the realm of mankind, and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. He bestows it on whomever he wishes. The idea is taught in the Old Testament. It's also something that Jesus taught. When Jesus, in John 19, verse 11, he was interacting with Pilate, and Pilate was talking about the authority that he had over Jesus, Jesus replied back this way. He says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from where? From above. If there is government on the face of the planet, God put it there. Because someone can only rule by God's permission. Now, it doesn't mean this is only true in autocratic situations. It's also true in democratic situations. If there's government there, someone is ruling by God's permission. The authority has been granted by God and delegated to them by God. Someone can only rule by God's permission. Now, that is the core and clear teaching. We see it here in Romans 13. We've seen it in the Old Testament. It's also something that Jesus taught. So I thought it would be good for us out loud to actually recite this together. We're going to take the phrase from Romans 13, and we're going to take the phrase from Daniel, and we're going to say it out loud. We're going to say there's no authority except from God. He bestows it on whom he wishes. Are you ready? Here we go. There is no authority except from God. He bestows it on whom he wishes. Again, there is no authority except from God. He bestows it on whom he wishes. You see, the idea of submitting to authority in government is a further expression of presenting ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. And the idea is, here we go again, there is no authority except from God. He bestows it on whom he wishes. Now, when we see statements by Paul like this, it is important that we understand the context from which they come. You will remember that the Jewish and Roman authorities were less than friendly to the emerging new church of Jesus Christ. And Paul writes these ideas that there's no authority except from God, even though he had trouble with the authorities shortly before he wrote this book. When he was in Philippi and the authorities arrested him and they beat him with rods and they imprisoned him, and yet even though all that happened, he says there is no authority except from God. So the core truth is, now you need to join me here. Here we go. There is no authority except from God. He bestows it on whom he wishes. Let's say it to ourselves one more time. There is no authority except from God. He bestows it on whom he wishes. Now, I want you to look back at verse 1. He says, every person 
is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. How many people are included in every person? Everybody, right? In fact, when you write in Greek, one of the ways that you can cause emphasis is where you put it in a sentence, and in this particular sentence, every person is in emphatic position. It's like it was triple underlined by Paul. Every person, every follower of Christ is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. In other words, compliance and deference to those in authority is the norm. Notice verse 2. It begins with the word, therefore. He's basically saying, consequently, since there's no authority except from God, and he bestows on whom he wishes, consequently, verse 2, whoever resists authority has opposed the actual ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. What does that last part mean? Well, it's, he further expands on that idea in verses 3 and 4. Now, I want to make clear what Paul is and is not saying. Paul is very clearly saying that there is no authority except from God, and he bestows on whom he wishes. And while God delegates the authority, Paul is not saying, he does not mean that God is responsible for the behavior of the government. He's not saying that. He's not saying that all that the government does is right. I mean, just look at his situation with the government. He knew that, that God wasn't responsible for the behavior of the authorities who arrested him in Philippi. He knew that he wasn't saying that everything that happened in Philippi was the right thing to happen. He's not saying that. But he is saying that ultimately those in authority are going to answer to God because they have authority that has been delegated down to them from God himself. So that's government's authority. Second thing we want to look at is government's responsibility in verses 3 and 4. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. I think the NIV reads here, Do you want to be free from fear of the one who is in authority? then do what is good. And he goes on to expand this a little bit in verse 4 when he says, for the one in authority, it could be translated it or he, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not or he does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now, something very interesting happens here in verse 4, two times talking about government, talking about the one in authority, two times he says that this individual who's in authority or the government is a minister of God. It's actually the word that is often translated deacon. The one in authority is a deacon of God. And what he's really stressing in these verses is that a law-abiding citizen does not need to fear the government. Now, if you are driving down the interstate highway here in the state of Oklahoma, and you are at or under the speed limit, you're driving 65, everything's good, right? But if you're going down the interstate highway at 85 miles per hour or 90 miles per hour, what's happening? Your head is on a swivel. 
You know, you're looking around because you have a little bit of fear that you might have to pay a 200-some dollar ticket if you get caught. A law-abiding citizen does not need to fear the government. A number of years ago, we had a pastor here in Norman, Oklahoma, who was robbing banks. It actually was happening. Now, a pastor in Norman, Oklahoma, who is not robbing banks, doesn't have to fear government. A pastor in Norman, Oklahoma, who is robbing banks, has to fear the government. Paul's saying the government is God's deacon. In what way? It's God's deacon to help avoid anarchy because anarchy is what happens when sinful people all decide that they're going to do whatever they want to do. And to help avoid that, God has delegated authority to his deacons, if you would. Now, I want you to keep your finger in Romans 13. We're going to be back there. I want to turn, though, further to the right in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2, and I want to read verses 13 to 17. It is a parallel passage to what Paul writes in Romans 13. So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13. And Peter, who spent a lot of time with the Lord himself, writes these words. He says, to us as believers and followers of Jesus, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him, God, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Here's what Peter says we are to do. Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. The idea is that God establishes authority, and we are to line up under that authority. Go back to Romans 13, verse 5. Let's look at the summary statement that he makes. He says, Therefore, drawing it all together, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. What is he referring to when he says not because of wrath? Well, he's talking about we need, we need to be careful and line ourselves up under authority or there's going to be civil punishment that's going to come our way. But not only that do we line ourselves up under and defer to those in authority, but we also do it for conscience' sake. In other words, we're to have a clear conscience before the Lord. What he's really saying here is that Christians, those followers of Jesus, should be the best citizens in whatever government situation there may be. As Peter said in 1 Peter 2.13, submit yourselves... It says, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. So we have been looking at the divine establishment of government. Now I want to move ahead a little bit and look at our responsibility to government in verses 6 and 7. Now we've already seen and we already recognize, right? There is no authority except from God, and He bestows it on whom He wishes, right? We've already seen that, and we recognize that, and we've already seen that compliance and deference to the one in authority is the norm. 
Now look at verse 6. It says, for because of this, you also, oh, and then there's those two words we don't like to see, pay taxes, right? For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Now, remember how in verse 4, it described that those in authority as the deacons of God. Here in verse 6, we have another term that is introduced for us. They are the servants of God. It is a, a different word. It's the word from which we get liturgy. It is the same term that was used to describe those in the Old Testament temple who would serve God. Yeah, we might even call them priests of God. You know, when I I think of individuals like this, I think about the firefighters and I think about the police and how they're just the servants of God to serve us in many different ways. Well, what we're being called to do is to pay taxes. Now, none of us like that phrase. Anybody in love with that phrase, pay taxes? I I didn't figure there would be anybody. I mean, you know, when taxes come up, we like to say, you know what, the big problem with taxes is taxes are unfair. They're just unfair. And not only that, not only do you have unfair taxes and unfair ways to determine what the taxes are going to be, but then you have taxes that we give to the government, and then those taxes are used irresponsibly. And I just don't like that. Like, our situation is unique. (laughs) It's not. It was true in Jesus' day. The taxes were unfair. You remember that a tax collector in Jesus' day, he could set the rate. He had to pay the government, the Roman government, a particular rate, but he could set whatever rate he wanted to collect. That's taxes that are unfair. And then the taxes that were collected were often used irresponsibly by the government. It was true in Jesus' day. It was true in Paul's time. The taxes were not really fair. And part of the taxes that were paid were used irresponsibly. So what are we to do? Well, he says, verse 7, render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. And we could put a parenthesis, even if it's not used wisely, because it wasn't in Jesus' day, it wasn't in Paul's time either. Custom to whom custom is due. Custom refers to tolls, duties, fees that the government would collect. excuse me, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. We're to honor those in authority, even if they're not admirable. Not everybody in authority in Paul's time when he wrote this was admirable. We may not respect the one in the office, but we can respect the office because it has been established by God. Now, that is, that, that is the core teaching uh, to all of this. I want to now talk about two common sidesteps. Two common, and there's probably more than two, but I want to just talk about two, where people attempt to sidestep the core, clear teaching of Romans 13 to in some way justify circumventing the teaching of Romans 13. So the first common sidestep goes something like this, and this is a pretty prominent one. It's been true historically for a while. Uh, Not only do other believers 
try to support this idea, but even some commentators do, and it goes something like this. The sidestep is, this is all good and okay here, Romans 13, if the government is just, but, the big but, if government becomes unjust, then all bets are off. All bets are off. Because it's supposed to do certain things about re- rewarding the good and, and, and correcting and confronting the evil. And so if it suddenly becomes unjust, then all bets are off. They would say, those who would take this little side step to try to circumvent the clear teaching, they would say, well, if the tax system becomes unjust, then we just ignore it. I mean, who's going to pay taxes to an unjust system? And, and, and even if... It is unjust. We maybe need to take a step that goes beyond that. And we've actually had people in the believing community who name the name of Christ who are beginning to suggest that maybe it's time for some rebellion in this country where we would rebel against authority. Now, for those who, who want to take that common sidestep to try to justify circumventing the teaching here, my response to them would be, wait a second now. Who was the emperor of Rome when Paul wrote Romans 13? And the answer to that question was Nero. Now, I don't know what you know about Nero, but there was nothing just about Nero. You can go study him historically. Nero was the emperor when Paul wrote these verses. Now, they might say to me, oh, yes, Bruce, you are correct. Nero was the emperor But when Paul wrote Romans 13, it was the good Nero. Later on, he became the really bad Nero. And we know that if it was the bad Nero, Paul would have never written Romans 13. He just wrote it when it was the the better. He never really was good, but the better Nero. And my response to that would be, He was the bad Nero when Peter wrote 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 17. That was the bad Nero who was even attacking Christians. And yet Peter writes, Submit yourselves, believers, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. It it, it bothers me when you begin to have people start talking about rebellion in the believing community. You know that in Jesus' time, there was a group of people called the Zealots. And what the Zealots had done is they had rationalized rebellion against the government. And if you go back and you look, you'll notice that Jesus never embraced that. Jesus never said, hey, the Zealots have it together. (laughs) That's what we need to be doing. We need to be rebelling against this unjust government. You know, when, when you start talking this way, that if the government becomes unjust, then all bets are off, And how do we determine that? Well, you know, it really ultimately comes up to individuals making a decision. Hey, I decide the government's not just, or I think the government is just. See, if we begin to do that as individuals, you know what we're doing? We're setting ourselves up as individual Supreme Court justices who are going to make our own ruling. We can't do that. We can't do that. The Lord Jesus said in John 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. 
If my king were of this world, if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting. It's not the way my servants operate. Because all authority is established by God. Now, there's a second um, sidestep that people are taking. This is a little newer. I hadn't really heard of this one until relatively recently. Just another way to kind of try to circumvent the clear core teaching of Romans 13. And, and this teaching goes something like this. And by the way, there's been a book written by a pastor that's really popularized this idea. But it says something along this line. Our situation's different in the United States of America. We, we're in, a, in kind of a unique situation. Because you see, in the United States of America, our authority is the Constitution. And we're not really obligated to submit to the rulers we have, those in authority in our country. What we need to be is obligated to submit to our authority, the Constitution. And if our rulers aren't really submitting themselves to the Constitution, we don't really have to follow them anymore. We're not obligated to submit to them because our situation is really unique because our authority is the Constitution. Now, let me just respond to that idea. It's kind of a little disturbing that that, to me, has gotten so popular. Hey, typical American perspective. We are not unique, men and women. We're not the only nation that ever had a constitution. You know, the, even the Roman Empire itself operated by a constitution. The Roman Empire had constitutional governing guidelines and principles. Now, although it was unwritten, there was a very clear oral tradition that existed. And if you know anything about the Roman Empire, you'll know that at the beginning, it was more constitutional. Later on, it became more monarchical, uh, that you had an emperor becoming more prominent in the government. We are not unique. And what is interesting is the New Testament doesn't focus on documents as much as it focuses on people in authority. It focuses on people, not on concepts. When it talks about authority in the New Testament, it's talking about the individuals who have de facto rule. It's not talking about the concepts of government. They can vary and vary and vary, but you've always got somebody who is in the place of authority. 1 Timothy 2.2, he talks about how we're to pray for kings and all in authority. He's talking about people. In 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14, He talks about submitting to every human institution, whether to a king or whether it's to governors, whatever the role is, you see. It's talking about people. And in Romans 13, it talks about rulers and ministers and servants. It's it's talking about people. And the teaching is clear. Now, I want to address two clarifying thoughts. These are just important, I think, at this juncture of our study. The first one is really a question for clarification, and that is this. Is what Paul teaching, does this mean blind compliance? Does this mean blind compliance? That if the government tells us that we just have to blindly comply with whatever the government has to say. And I want to share 
what I see and we see as two limitations that are given in the Bible about this. And these are somewhat carefully worded. Here's the first limitation. We do not give blind compliance when the government requires us to contradict a direct command of God. We do not give blind compliance when that happens. Second limitation. We do not give blind compliance when the government mandates that we, not necessarily that they do it, but that they mandate that we violate a clear moral law of God. No blind compliance when the government mandates that we violate a clear moral law of God. Now, I'm not going to take time to unpack all of that. I'm not going to take time to illustrate all that today. You have to come back next week when Mark will be here, and he'll talk a little bit more about those limitations. Second clarifying thought, and this is very important, and I'm speaking to my own heart and speaking to yours, and I'm going to be very blunt. We need to stop the panic and live by faith. You know, when we talked about at the beginning, how many of us are distressed and discouraged and demotivated and even exasperated, hands went up all everywhere. And you know what? You begin to talk among the Christians, and you find Christians having the attitude, hey, it's all unraveling. The sky is falling. The end of the world is coming if this election doesn't happen to go just the way we want it to go. What is with that? What is with that panic attitude? It's almost like God's not watching And it all depends on us. I hope we can come through. Listen, men and women, the Bible teaches us that everyone reaches office only by God's permission. And we need to stop the panic and live by faith. We need to have faith, no matter what happens, that God is on the throne. We need to have faith that God's going to keep his promises. I don't care what happens in an election. We need to have faith that nothing is going to thwart the plan of God. We need to have faith that he can be trusted. I don't care who wins or who loses. We need to stop the panic and live by faith. You know, I I don't know if you're like me, but when I look around and I survey the field of people that are running for some of our national offices, it seems to me that we lack great candidates. Anyone else feel that way? We seem to lack really good candidates. And here's here's the way, this is kind of my my mind imagines things. I imagine having an opportunity to just sort of walk into the throne room of God and to say to him, hey, hey, Lord, where are the good leaders that we need as a nation? Now, I have a theory. This is not biblical. I'm just giving you Bruce theory here. It's nothing more than that. But if you follow this idea, I imaginatively walk into the throne room of God and I say, God, where are the leaders that we need? We need them right now. And here's my theory. I believe his answer to us would be, I sent them to you and you aborted them. You know that since January 22nd of 1973, we have in the United States of America, our great nation and culture, we have aborted 58 million babies. That's 18% of our current population. 
about one-fifth of our current population we have killed. And that's a significant number, 58 million. It would be just like, just to give you an analogy, it would be just like going into the state of California and the state of Florida and executing everybody. Or to put it another way, it would be just exactly like going into the state of New York, the state of Pennsylvania, the state of Ohio, and the state of Illinois and executing everybody. Or to bring it closer to home, it would be just the same. When you're talking about 58 million lives taken, it'd be the same as taking the population of Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, Louisiana, Arkansas, New Mexico, and Colorado and wiping them out. Or another way, if you were to take our states and list them from population amount with the top being the most down to the, le- the least, and you were going to eliminate 58 million, you'd climb up through 28 states. 58 million. And in my little imagination, I, when I say to God, where are the leaders that we need? I think he's going to say, I sent them to you, but you aborted them. I can't prove that. But I'm confident he would say this, you're getting the leaders that you deserve as a nation and a culture because of some of what you have done. Think about that perspective the next time you're wrestling around with what leaders we have before us to elect on a national basis. Now, we want to just close with some some life response, okay? I'm going to suggest three things. After everything we've looked at, here's three responses that we can have. Number one, this is a phrase that I learned from one of my spiritual mentors. He said, this is an important phrase to remember, and it's this, relax and remember the primary cause. A great principle when we're in this kind of an election, to relax and remember the primary cause. The people who win are going to be the ones that God determined are going to win. It's just freaky to think about, but it's true. And we need to relax, not get into panic mode. We need to relax and remember the primary cause of the outcome of this election. Second life response is to pray. And as I've been frustrated at times, I've often said to myself this, I said, I wonder if I had prayed as as often as I had complained in the past months. And by the way, we need to be praying for mercy. Heavens to Betsy, I don't want to pray for justice from God. After what we've done as a culture, we need to pray and pray for mercy. And that's why that cry out event that Atlanta was talking about is so important. Third thing, we need to remember that we're ambassadors for Christ. We need to remember that we're ambassadors for Christ. Right now, take a snapshot. Right now, today, we are ambassadors for Christ. Is that not true? We're representing the living God on this planet in the areas that we live and work in and and go to school and everything else. Guess what? After the election, we are still ambassadors for Christ. That role is not going to change. And you say, well, wait, it's going to get darker. Well, if it gets darker, then the light will shine brighter. We need to remember we're ambassadors for Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for how powerful it is. We thank you so much that it gives us perspective about what's going on in life. And Father, we just ask for mercy. We ask for your mercy to us as individuals and to us as a culture and to us as a nation. May we choose to honor you. 
And we pray these things in Jesus' name.